does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Nate Atkins joins us on the program from the Indianapolis Star. Uh, he has a very interesting article about Jermaine O'Neal that, Nate, I'm going to begin with this. We had had Jermaine on last week just before the All-Star game, and you had a little differing conversation than we did, although some of it was the same, in particular the brawl. I just found Jermaine O'Neal, not that he never was to begin with, but I think it was an opportunity, or we are undergoing an opportunity for fans of the Indiana Pacers to realize that Jermaine O'Neal, I think, is a far more mature, I'm not going to say intelligent because there was no reason for us to think he wasn't intelligent, but a mature and at this point, I think, almost sentimental person than we saw as a player. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, You know, it's easy to think back on his career and especially the, the topic that dominated that conversation with the brawl and just kind of see him uh, in that moment and see him for, you know, a lot of the, you know, in, intensity he had on the court and to assume that that, you know, that that leads, you know, and how young he came into the NBA right at 17 years old, right out of high school. And just to kind of label him as a, as an immature player who wasn't going to grow out of that. Like he almost was like locked into this memory of uh, either that 17 year old version of him or that 26 year old version of him, uh, the year of the brawl. And that was kind of a very evolving time in his life where, uh, you know, I know he, he went on your guys' show and laid it out too, but, uh, you know, he hadn't met his father until he was 30 years old. And he went through a lot in that, that period with the Pacers, you know, his, his stepfather, you know, attempted suicide at that time. And he had kids born throughout there. And now his kids are, you know, they're, they're at that stage where his son's a, a big time high school basketball recruit, his daughter as a professional volleyball player. And so, uh, you know, people, people, you know, evolve as they go. And I think there's always more to him at the time that we knew, but I think he, uh, the way he kind of laid it out is that he was, he was finding out his ways to express that, figure that out, understand kind of where that, uh, you know, how, how he can do it his way. And, um, and it was just kind of a, a high pressure time for him and his life to be a first round pick with the, with the trailblazers to be the piece that the Pacers brought in to you know, kind of help elevate this team uh, with Reggie Miller to try to go get that championship. And then I think all that kind of came to a head in that moment with the brawl where he sort of, uh, you know, obviously it's such a hectic situation and he just felt like he was uh, needing to step up and be more of a sort of protector for teammates on the court. And, and that's what kind of bothers him is, is in the 20 years since then, it hasn't really been viewed that way at all. It was viewed instead uh, just that the, he and the rest of the Pacers that were involved were, were just these uh, reckless players um, like I just watched the, the documentary again on Netflix, The Mouse in the Palace, and just the number of outlets uh, and talking heads that use the word thug uh, just really kind of cast him in a, in a fortunate light that he kind of felt trapped in for, for 20 years. And part of that was he wasn't allowed to talk about it because of the ongoing criminal and civil cases. Part of it is he didn't, I guess, I, I don't think always knew how to talk about it. Obviously, there's part of him that didn't want to talk about it because it's not, you know, not a fun topic you want to be able to move past it but I think over time he realized that the way to move past it was to talk about it and really dig into it and address it and, and bring it to light so 
I think that documentary was one step. And I think some of the, uh, you know, coming back to Indy this week and going on your show and, and talking to us, and I, I think that's kind of his way to sort of talk through it a little bit and, and show people that, like, there was always more to this guy than maybe you thought at the time, more than you thought heading into the NBA, and certainly more than you think when you just see a, a clip from a, you know, brawl during a basketball game 20 years ago. Nate, I don't want to be overly Freudian with this, but when we talked to Jermaine and when I read your article, which is very well done with Jermaine, and reading his different vantage points, many of which he shared with you that he's not with us and, and vice versa, but I couldn't help but walk away from it. And then after the fact, when when I had a brief exchange with Jermaine just about him coming on our show, um, it seems to me that what we have seen and what we were naive to in the moment and what we overlooked in the moment is that what we were seeing was a young player who was standing up for and defending his teammates and in his mind his brothers in a form or fashion that he felt like no one in his life had done for him. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. You know, that ties it right back to the uh, that, that whole topic about how he grew up without a dad until he got to the age of 30. Uh, you know, and as a guy who was one of the youngest players ever to reach the NBA, didn't feel like he had the opportunity or the leadership around him in Portland, you know, and then gets kind of dropped into a, a team that needs a lot out of him in Indiana. And I remember he, uh, you know, he requested to have a locker next to Reggie Miller. And I think he talked to you guys about how he lived uh, near Isaiah Thomas. And so he was sort of seeking this out. Like there's a part of him that understood that he needed a little bit more uh, mentorship and, and guidance, but you know, you're looking for things and you don't, you don't know what you don't know at that point. So he's kind of going through all this. He laid out um, you know, to me just how like everything that he learned as a man, it was in real time kind of in front of everybody a lot of the time, you know, in these games, in these moments, interviews, uh, he's growing up from, you know, from 17 to 26, which is when the brawl happened to 30. There's, there's more growth in that span than probably has happened in his entire life. And so, yeah, I think that, uh, the moment on the court that gets, you know, I think all the Pacers players involved, uh, or at least the, the main three, Ron Artest, uh, Stephen Jackson, and, and Jermaine O'Neal, all got kind of just lumped as, as doing the same thing, and, um, and they're all in the wrong, and they were the, you know, it was them against the fans. And I think there's nuance for all of them, but especially for Jermaine, because he was not, you know, he was the only one of those three who did not go into the stands. He was down there on the court at a moment where, uh, this environment turned incredibly enraged, and fans all of a sudden it went from fighting with uh, Ron in, in the stands to coming down onto the court. And a fan approaches Ron Artest, and then the fan is going over there, standing over Anthony Johnson. And that was the moment where there's, you know, uh, Jermaine just felt like he was brought here to be an important uh, player and an important piece for this team on the court. All of a sudden, that that call came to him in a moment where the play is stopped on the, on the court and he sees a teammate's about to be attacked. And so he, he felt like he needed to run over there and step into it and, and do something about that. And, and mostly that's what it, it seems like the, uh, the, the legal side of this kind of sided with the players over time. They reduced the suspension for Jermaine by 10 games. And they found that, uh, that, you know, the moment we're on our test punched a, a fan on the court you know, he was defending himself because you sort of they came down onto their space at that point. So the, there's criticism to be had for going into the stands where the fans are. Uh, 
even though there's nuance to how that, that started. But certainly when the fans are coming down onto the court in an environment where there's only three police officers working, and in the documentary, one of them didn't even know who Reggie Miller was. So these players did not feel at all protected. Uh, they didn't feel like they had any chance, any choice other than to sort of, it's sort of like a, you know, a hit or be hit situation in that moment for him. And you know, you can nitpick it and criticize it, I think, but to him, he was, he was just doing the thing that he was uh, brought here to be, which is, you know, a, a face of this franchise. And unfortunately that happened in, in a very dark moment where, there, there really wasn't a lot of winning to be had. It was either let your teammate be attacked or be the one attacking. And, uh, and unfortunately for him, that sort of became the label for him going forward. Nate Atkins of the Indy Star is our guest. Nate, when we talked to Jermaine, it was still prior to his arrival here in Indianapolis for the All-Star festivities. With your conversation, you were talking to him after he had had that opportunity to meet up with other Pacers greats, meet up with Donnie Walsh, as you highlight in the piece that he had thanked Donnie, as you highlighted it for the first time, of bringing him from Portland, Indiana, and basically having a rejuvenation for his career as it was kind of stalling out in his early seasons at Portland. We know his accolades. I think a lot of people my age, I was a kid when Jermaine was with the Pacers, but view him in such high regard, I would like to see if not a jersey retirement ceremony someday, some type of honor to come his way. I don't know if the Pacers will do that, but I think the Pacers fan base would like to see something like that happen. As you documented all those interactions and him returning back to the place where he still has a 317 area code, all the love that fans gave him this week, do you think that was enough in terms of a reminder for him of how much Pacers fans do still love and appreciate him? Or do you think there's still a sense of longing for a more public acknowledgement for what he meant to the franchise. I think there's two different camps for him, which is one is uh, actually you could say three different camps. There's, there's the fan base, which I do think he's, he feels love from this week. Uh, people have kind of been able to hold on to the kind of the, the high moments rather than just, you know, just one moment from the brawl. Uh, there's the teammates he was with, and we know there was, you know, he, he went at it with, with Ron Artest a bit, but for the most part, you know, we loved, Reggie Miller loved his time playing here and wanted to retire here. And uh, Donnie Walsh, you know, being a part of that too, he brought up Herb Simon. So those, those kind of individual characters, I think he's very close with, but there is something missing between him and the team still. Uh, you know, he's, he, he talked I think, to you guys a little bit and he's, he, he made a post about how, you know, he didn't love that they, they keep, you know, passing his number along number seven and Buddy Heald had it. And, he brought up how that was never intentional, you know, targeted to Buddy, but just the fact that they keep giving that number out so much. So not only not retiring it, but, you know, just kind of cycling through it as if it, it didn't mean a lot. Um, he brought up how, like, in his years with the Celtics at the very end of his career, he, he had his agent call the Pacers and ask if he could come back and retire. And he was open to either kind of, you know, a last dance season on the bench there or just dying to have, like, a one-day deal with a press conference and they didn't seem interested at all. So you kind of package that all together. And he just felt like they kind of moved off of him pretty quickly after identifying him as that missing piece and building him as a, a you know, a cornerstone player. And I could just kind of feel the, uh, that sense of, of regret or, or sense of frustration in him when I asked if, if he thought they'd ever retire his number. And he just looked down and he just looked really, really angry for about two seconds. And then he just said, you know, it's it's whatever's God's will at this point. And it kind of it brought me back to another comment he had where he said, 
you know, the year after he asked if he could retire at the Pacers and basically got ignored in his very final season, he stopped even thinking about that. He almost sort of like uh, it, it would make him too mad to, to think too much on that, or he just didn't see that as a possibility. So it's a weird kind of mix right now because I think coming back here to Indy this week, you know, brought him back in with seeing, you know, Donnie Walsh and Reggie Miller, guys that he loved and the fans and the reception from them. But there still is something a little bit missing when he then goes into Gamebridge Fieldhouse, you know, for the All-Star game and there's, his jersey's not up there and there's just not a lot he feels like from the franchise publicly in any way that's kind of taking his back. And I think some of that, you know, in a celebratory way, but some of that goes back to, even during that time at the brawl, he didn't quite feel like they wanted to to step out there and speak on his behalf either. So, I, I don't think I, I don't sense that he feels like it's a, a perfect relationship with the team, even though uh, he does have high regard for the individual people that were there at the time. You know, I remember Nate covering Jermaine O'Neal late in his career here, and I remember what I still remember exactly where we were the tunnel leading out to the practice floor when, in a group interview, he said that. He thought and wanted his number to be retired and thought it should be. And at the time, I mean, it was like an eye roll amongst everybody, right? And and now, over the course of time, you know, things whittle away a little bit where it makes a little more sense. But in the moment, it was certainly like people were like, dude, really? Um, but now I think we have a better understanding just how good a player he was. Real quick, two things before we go, Nate. Nate Atkins from the Indianapolis Star is our guest talking about his piece with Jermaine O'Neal. But um, – Yes or no, in the next two weeks or I guess 12 days, whatever it would be, Michael Pittman Jr. gets a franchise tag? It's a great question. I'd have to, if I had to guess, and that's all we're doing at this point is, is really guessing, I think he will, uh, just in the sense of giving the Colts an opportunity to sort of play out this extension talk with him. So if he's acknowledged that the franchise tag uh, can lead to a long-term deal. That's what it was initially placed in there for, even though some teams don't use it that way. They use it more as a rental. But I think Chris Ballard has, has thought a ton about this. Obviously, he's thought, thought a ton about this, but especially in relation to the last time they had a conversation with the star player about the franchise tag was with Jonathan Taylor. And that led to you know a lot of, of discontent because it felt like that wasn't uh, that that wasn't a tool out there to sort of create a long term deal. Um, so if he's going to use it this time, I think it has it, it should be more in that uh, that realm that conversation. He's talked to Pittman a ton about it. So I think we're going to know pretty quickly. Uh, it's you know if he uses it, I think that's that's what it's going to be for is to to just sort of keep other teams from bidding on him. To you know, it's, there's a little bit of a price discount, but not a lot because he still has a lot of leverage as a wide receiver at this stage in the NFL uh, with, with his accomplishments. Uh, but I think that if they if they don't franchise tag him, I fully expect Michael Pittman to court just about every offer that's out there. He really wants to see what the interest is like, what all the possible landing spots are like, the possible quarterbacks and offensive coordinators he could play with. He's been, he's been looking forward to this for a long time. So I don't think that there's going to be an extension without that sort of uh, open free agency f- from his side unless they go ahead and they franchise tag him. But like I said, to, to be able to do that and not, you know, enrage another star player, to be, to be able to do that and have a kind of good negotiation from then, I think they have to communicate it well. And, and my understanding is they've talked so much about this and other topics and gotten to know each other so close that they are both pretty straight shooters. Uh, I, I have a feeling that they've uh, that, that there's a plan in place here. And if I had to guess, I think he will be franchise tagged. But more is just a way to 
to kind of prolong the negotiation until they can get the right numbers down. Nate, explain this to me like I'm a third grader because I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, I was an Indianapolis News Honor Carrier, for that matter, when I was a kid, which was, of course, aligned with the star. I've always had a great love and passion for the getting the newspaper, reading the newspaper. I have a lot of friends that work with you and colleagues at the newspaper. I have a couple that probably don't like me at the newspaper because – at times, I've been frustrated by what I have seen as you guys being put in difficult situations due to cuts beyond your control by the parent company. But I see today what I guess is good news that they are going to start investing more money and more more resources in for you guys. Can you, in 30 seconds, like I'm a third grader, tell us what the upshot is today for Gannett and the Indianapolis Star? Yeah, I think the upshot today is, is just kind of on a basic level that it is an actual investment back into the newspaper, which is the opposite of kind of what you laid out, where for many years it's been sort of downsizing and cutting costs and kind of and at times, unfortunately, cutting staff members and cutting resources. And so uh, that's kind of happened, you know, unfortunately, across Gannett and many other newspapers on, on other companies. That's just unfortunate. The, the time that we're in, but this was a move that Gannett wanted to make to, to put $2 million back specifically into the Indy star uh, to hire some of the positions that we have open, which is several. We've had some on the news side open since, uh, since last fall. So uh, it, it's a way to sort of be a little bit more uh, competitive to, you know, salary wise to get some of the, the reporters in here, get, just get kind of more manpower um, as we've had so many openings that have happened, either layoffs or people leaving, kind of under just the the fear or the the stress of of all that's happened in our industry so it's not um you know it's a, it's a good sign it's not necessarily gonna gonna fix everything that's going on but i do think it's positive momentum in a way that that you know the news industry and our paper specifically has needed for quite some time and i'm hoping that it's sort of that that boost to help covering more of this city uh in showing the the people of the city you know all the great efforts we do on both the sports and the news side which is you know, won two Pulitzer Prizes uh, just in the in, in the past 10 years or so. So uh, we're certainly hopeful that it's going to lead to some good stuff. $2 million investment in Indianapolis operations. That is the second story right now on IndyStar.com. Only underneath, Pacer star Jermaine O'Neal opens up on the brawl 20 years later, written by Nate Atkins. Nate, appreciate it, and have fun covering the frenzy here of Franchise Tag and Colts Free Agency as well. Yeah, we'll do. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Nate Atkins from the Indianapolis Star. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Joining us now on the program, a guy that I think does as good a job covering college basketball as anybody that you're going to find primarily in the Big East. And John Fanta, I want to begin by saying this. I have told you this before, but I'm going to repeat it, and there's a reason for it. To me, you are one of the best radio guests that we have because you have a very unique ability to be able to give really good information, but in a fashion that the listener feels like they've known you forever. And that's a unique skill set. But for that reason, I think people feel like this personal connection to you. And we were going to have you on a few weeks ago and very understandably, you were not able to do so because your father had passed. And so I first want to offer on behalf of our listeners who feel like they know you and those of us on this program are very uh, sincere condolences. And I can 
only imagine from your father's standpoint that you did what anybody would want to do, and that is you allowed your father to pass as a very proud individual of your accomplishments. So my condolences to you, and with that, thanks for the time today. Um, well, thank you so much, guys. Thank, thank you for saying that, um, and I appreciate that, the, the ability to relate with people. That, that means a lot. You know, for me, uh, my dad taught me, I'm sure like a lot of your listeners, uh, we count on our fathers to teach us about work ethic and to teach us about doing the right thing. And, and both, you know, both my parents have taught me that, but, but my dad really, uh, he inspired me to pursue the passion that I have. And, uh, he said, you know, you, you want to carry that passion with you every single day. And you can control a couple of things in this world. There's a lot of things that are out of all of our control. Uh, you know, I wish I wish my dad was still around right now, but we, we all don't control that. Uh, and, and I think for me, what I can control is living in his honor. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think the thing that comes to mind most is is he said you can do two things. You can you can outwork people. You can put your head down and work as hard as possible. Uh, and the second thing is you can be a kind person to deal with, you know, and uh, that that's how I've always tried to carry out my business. And, and that's how I've always tried to do this gig. And, you know, I, I love college basketball. I love sports. I grew up in Cleveland and uh, you, you grow up living, breathing, dying Cleveland sports there. And then college basketball has become my forte. And I love the passion of it. I love the fans. That's why we do this. That's why you guys are on this show right now. We do it for the people that are listening and tuning in. We appreciate those people because without them, it wouldn't be as fun. And so I miss him, but uh, I know he wouldn't want me moping. People ask me every day, how are you holding up? I say, I'm, I'm, you know what? It's a new day. It's a new opportunity. And I know that sounds cliche, but my dad would be in my ear saying, hey, don't sit tight and not do what you love during the best time of year. This is prime time in college basketball. It Get is, man. It. You're right. That's what I'm doing for him. And your dad is like, listen, you got to go on Querying Company and speak to all seven people that they've got <laughs> listening to their program, right? I mean, so, John, we appreciate it. Hey. hey. He loves Casey and the Sunshine Band, so way to come out of break. Way to come out of break with See, that. See, I knew it. I knew that we were doing it all for – it was all coming together for us. John, I want to begin with this. I, I had mentioned this earlier, and I want your, your thoughts on this. John Fanta, who, of course, covers college basketball for Fox Sports and primarily in the Big East. We'll talk about Butler in a second. But to use, I guess, the Butler game last night with Villanova, we can look at that right now because we are closer to the tournament selection day and say – well, this is like a, a play-in game, or this is a make-or-break game. Do we put too much emphasis at this time of year on games in a vacuum? Does it really matter, or is it simply looked at in totality? Or, because of recency bias when the selection committee gets together, are these games more important than, say, if they were in early December? Yeah, I, I do think that they're more important, and I, I don't know if the committee would ever admit that, but let's face it. If I'm a committee member, I'm really watching every single night all these bubble teams. I'm, I'm zoning in on them because we can go down the pathway of metrics all we want, and, and there are several pieces that they use there. You know, one of, the, one of the pet peeves I have this time of year, guys, is everybody's bringing up a team's net. All right, everybody's bringing up a team's net. The committee has never said, that the net is the number one determinant 
of whether or not they select a team. And it's not, because if it was, then a team like SMU with a top 35 net would be in the tournament. They're not even close to the NCAA tournament. So the, the thing is, and, and their net sits at 36 currently, uh, the thing is, this time of year does matter because you can't tell me the eye test isn't a part of this, right? The committee went to the Marquette-Butler game uh, last week. They saw Butler play live. You know, Butler, Butler has an advantage. Purdue has an advantage. Indiana has an advantage. Because, you know why? The committee, when they meet in Indianapolis, they go to these games. They go in person. They watch these teams play. Uh, because the NCA offices are in Indianapolis. Of course, I guess it could be yeah. a disadvantage to some extent, John, right? If you completely stub <laughs> your toe because you can't kind of hide an anonymity. Anonymity is the That's wrong right. word, but you get what I'm saying, right? No, I, I do get what you're saying. But I, I, I do think these games matter more because here's the thing. If a team loses six of seven in December, right, versus a team losing six of seven this time of year, let's say around that December, everything else they did was pretty well, was was good enough to – Good enough to, uh, to, to make the, the tournament. If you lose six or seven this time of year and you were already sort of floating near the bubble, you're giving the committee an out. You're giving them an out. You're giving them an explanation. What you don't want to do in this, you don't want to give the committee a reason to keep you out. Because we often say they got to find 68 somehow. Yeah, but it starts with 362. It starts with 362 teams. Now, several of those teams are eliminated from tournament conversation before the season even starts. But at the end of the day, 19% of the teams that play in college basketball make the postseason, just less than one-fifth. If you give the committee a reason to keep you out, they'll be delighted to keep you out because it keeps them from getting all that negative feedback. So this time of year, if you are near the bubble, yes, one night can change your season, just like in November or December to a lesser extent. If you beat number one or if you beat a top five team, that result can carry unlimited mileage. John Fanta of Fox College Hoops is our guest. <clears throat> Tried to power through that, couldn't do it. <laughs> John, I went to the Butler-Providence game a couple weeks ago. I've highlighted it a couple times here on Query and Company, and Butler looked great in the first half, and then the second half, they give up 40, but they close on an 11-1 to run. They win that game. I feel pretty good about Butler's chances to make the tournament, and now it's three straight losses against good competition, but three straight losses, to your point, all the same at the wrong time of year for that to happen. And they've had second-half struggles. They've had key pieces that have, like Posh Alexander, that have struggled for them offensively. And now where they stand, whether they're outside looking in or they're still one of those last four in spots they go Seton Hall on the road at home St. John's away at DePaul home against Xavier from my perspective I know neither of us are committee members but you follow the Big East better than anybody from my perspective if they win out I think they're probably in I think they don't need to make noise in the Big East tournament if they drop one I feel like then you're asking them to do something they historically have not done the last decade which is do well in that tournament do you see it the same way, or am I oversimplifying Butler's situation? No, you're not oversimplifying. You know why? I have evidence to prove it. Only one Big East team in the history of the league, old, new, whatever, has missed the NCAA tournament with at least 20 wins. It was John Beeline's West Virginia team. This is years ago. In other words, if Butler gets four more wins, they're going to be at 20-11. and 11. 
they will be they will have road wins over Marquette and Creighton. They will have a road win over fellow bubble team Seton Hall. They will be in. They will be in. But this Saturday night game at Seton Hall is a massive game. I think it's a must-win game for Butler. I don't think you can allow yourself to lose five of six games this time of year. That's, that's what we call danger time. That's serious danger time. And here's the other reason why. After this game at Seton Hall, is there a move-the-needle resume opportunity? The answer to that question is no. Home St. John's, not a great win. St. John's has fallen off the map. At DePaul, you'd be better off sending DePaul a check and not even going over to Chicago. They'd probably <laughs> take the money to help pay for their new coach because uh, they, they're they're so bad. It's it's you're you know it's just not a it's not a positive experience to have to go and play them. You gain nothing from the game. Just stay healthy. Knock on wood. Then home Xavier. The fact is Xavier's fallen off the tournament map. So for Butler's resume. This game at Seton Hall is huge. If they can couple a win at Seton Hall with with wins after that, they're going to make it. They're going to take momentum into the Big East tournament. They're going to make it. The issue is, tell you what, that game Saturday is tough. Seton Hall is going to have a lower bowl sellout. They've had a very nice year, guys. I mean, Shaheen Holloway deserves an immense amount of credit. The fact he's got this team competitive. They're like Butler. They have their NIL constraints. They they meaning they. They don't have a lot of money to pay players, but they've got five quad one wins. They beat UConn, and they're eleven and three at home on the season. So Butler has their hands full Saturday night. They got to be ready for Kadari Richmond. John Fanta is our guest, college basketball writer, television, everything for Fox, as well as you know, primarily the Big East. John, we were talking about this earlier. I want to run this past you because you're a college basketball guru. You ready? Now, I need you to, to think outside the box here for a second. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay, great. So so here's what we decided. Kalamazoo, Michigan, apparently has built a $300 million arena, and it's on Cooley Street, which is that alone is, is cool enough. But we've decided that the, the NCAA tournament, people love it. They love Selection Sunday. They love hearing you talk about it. They love hearing about breaking down, like, quads and the whole deal, right? And so – I think we get we're not focusing enough on the greatness that is Detroit and Coppin State with DePaul hanging around as the worst teams amongst all of them in Division One. So in Kalamazoo, Michigan, I think we should have what we call the suck play-in game, where the two teams with the worst record in college basketball play, and then the winner has to go directly to Dayton and play the lowest 16 seed, with the winner of that game getting to play into the play-in game to then try to go on. Your thoughts? <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yes. I knew you would, John. I knew you would. Right? Let's go. Let's make this happen. Let's make this happen. <laughs> yes. So, wait, so Okay. So, so who's playing who? No, here's what I think. Okay. Right now, and this is, and yeah, John, yeah. This, is, this is what makes it beautiful. We need, because we focus so much on, you know, Butler and Villanova and the importance of that game or Creighton and UConn, which we haven't even talked about yet. And like UConn and Purdue battling for the number one seed overall and Houston's right there. I mean, I get it. Right. But we need to focus on the fact that there's a, another race in play here, and that is that you have one win Detroit Mercy and two win Coppin State with three win right. DePaul hanging around. De- DePaul is thinking to themselves, guys, we just need a couple of these teams to win a couple games, and we've got a chance to be the worst, right? I mean, that's what you want. So you go to Kalamazoo, you play in this right. new arena in Kalamazoo, and then you have the chance to represent the worst 
the worst of the worst, right? Maybe you even just send the loser of the game into the tournament just to make it fun. Because can you imagine yeah. if Mike Davis goes well, on man, a run? It's like old school American Idol. I think there was one audition that was so bad. <laughs> yes. Randy, Randy Jackson and Paul Abdul said, you know what? Put them through. <laughs> yeah, we we want. This is what we're doing. Like Detroit Mercy, who's going to be the William Hung of the NCAA tournament? That's what we're looking for, right? Let's right. go. I think that's it. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> who's going to be a William Hung of the NC? Yes. I never thought those words would be said, <laughs> but I love it. I mean, look, you know, there's those there's those um, social media accounts, sickos, college football and basketball, like the worst of the worst in the sport. And uh, I'll tell you what, I mean, as much as there's some great teams in this sport, there are some god-awful ones. So the, the crazy thing about it is I would, I would watch Coppin State play Detroit Mercy. Just give me a bag of popcorn and a Miller Lite, and I'm all set. <laughs> or a case of it, right? Hey, John. Right, um, or maybe a case of it, exactly. Listen, Connecticut, back to, to the reality here, uh, you know, we know that Purdue was tabbed as the number one overall seed. Then they stubbed their toe at Ohio State. And Connecticut looked like an absolute juggernaut. They get beat. I think that we in Indiana focus on this jockeying back and forth between Connecticut and Purdue, who could be the number one overall seed in the tournament. I think both are safe as number one seeds for now. But how close is Houston? Is there really that much of a gap between Houston uh, and then Connecticut-Purdue? Well, uh, I, I think I think Connecticut is is the best team in the country that came off of an emotional dominant win over Marquette, and the other team last night in Omaha, Nebraska, played in one of the best home court atmospheres in the sport, but hit fourteen threes. They had their night, and they were they were ready for revenge, and they got them. They got them. Uh, but you've won fourteen in a row. You know, I was starting to to wonder when was UConn going to lose again. And not not is it bad, but like it was feeling like Big East play was getting a little bit stale, gentlemen. Like I was wait, waiting for somebody to blink. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, I I think I think Houston is better than Purdue. Okay, and I'm a little bit contrarian. Uh, I I think Purdue is a, a a really really good team. Could be a great team. Uh, they're they're a great team. They could be a national championship team. But Sunday concerns me because I want to buy fully in. I'm at the register right now, and I want to tell you that I'm all in on Purdue to win it all. But, you know, you lost to an Ohio, UConn lost to a Creighton team that's top 15 in the country, right? Purdue lost to a team that had lost nine of its last 11 games and was well, well off the map. I know they get the emotional boost from a coaching change, so you're going to play with pride. But opponent aside, you know, what, what this comes down to back for me is, like Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith, they've got to be that dynamic duo. Game in and game out. Game in and game out. This team's got some other pieces with Lance Jones and Drake Kaufman-Wren. But in this loss to Ohio State, Fletcher Lawyer went one for seven from the floor. He and Lance Jones combined to go four for 18. And Purdue went three of nine from three. A team that they're so potent from the three-point arc. And they're able to, to, to make threes at a, at a high rate. They've done that this season. But as much as you can live by that, you also can die by it. And I think what you're going to see teams do in the tournament is they're going to sit here and say, you know what? 
We will let the best player in the country do his thing. You're not going to stop Zach Eady. He's Godzilla on the interior. He's unstoppable. But what you can do is you can sit here and say, we're just going to make an extremely conscious effort of taking away the three-point line from Purdue. Now, what's interesting is last night, Creighton held Connecticut to three for 16 from deep. And what happened? Connecticut got their doors blown off because Creighton fought through screens. They went over on screens and they said, we're not letting UConn's guards beat us. That type of formula, it's interesting because like Edie, Klingon's in there for UConn, but then they space around him. And it's hard, but the right teams, if they've got the length and the versatility defensively, they could be disruptive. They can create turnovers. What's the other issue if you take Purdue's three-point ability away? Edie is a willing passer, guys. He had the three assists against Ohio State. He also had six turnovers. Now, that's an outlier performance, but it's illustrative of the defensive approach that Ohio State took. Ohio State said we're cutting off threes. Because if you give Purdue with a seven foot four, three hundred pound monster eight or nine threes, they're not going to lose. They're not going to lose. Uh, so that's my concern with the Boilers and why I, I, I actually don't have them one or two today. Could they move? Could of course they could be back to number one in no time. Uh, but I think it's also illustrative of college basketball in general. What makes this sport great is this year is that there's a, a, a ton of parity. There's there's so so much parity across the board. But there also is an echelon of teams at the top that I think I'd be surprised if they, if they lose early. That's the interest factor. And I'll tell you this, there has never been a situation where we've been watching a one versus 16 game to the degree that we'll all be watching Purdue in their first NCAA tournament game back on the big dance floor. But right now, UConn is, is still my best team. Do I think they'll be ranked number one on Monday? No. I am a believer in if they lose, it's a results-based thing when you make rankings. I had some people say, well, I'm not moving Purdue at all. Well, like you have to, you have to account for teams' wins and losses. What you think a team's resume is and their seeding is in the NCAA tournament isn't necessarily where you have them ranked in your top 15 or top 25 ranking system right now, you know, Purdue be about three for me. Uh, but I, I give a slight, you know, I give a lot of credit to Houston who's having a sensational year guys. And they're in year one in the big, I was going to say in a new they, league, right? You know, it? Yeah. They, they, they've handled the transition with ease. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Hoops broadcaster and reporter for Fox Sports, John Fanta, is our guest. John, you host a Field of 68 podcast where you cover the bracket in every angle you could possibly imagine and sometimes even have those reactionary ones after a big Tuesday night, your late night edition that you had last night. Sticking with Purdue, I would argue, A, no college fan base in the country is going to be upset that the debate that's happening is, oh, which one seed are we going to be? Like That's a great problem to have for Purdue basketball. And you're right, there is a sense of the ghosts of tournaments past, most notably FDU last year. Mathematically speaking, you're right, we're going to watch that game intently. It's near impossible 
for Purdue to lose to a 16 again. That's not the game I'm worried about. Maybe Purdue <laughs> fans are. I'm worried about, depending on the draw, where they move along. That said, when you look at Purdue, the landscape of college basketball you just outlined, where there's an upper echelon clearly, but it's also a wide-open tournament this year, it feels like, as well. Is Purdue more in danger of matchup problems in the Final Four, or like making it because they're the best team clearly in their region, or are they more worried about matchup problems like you saw Creighton-UConn last night where it's a team that defensively is going to be as aggressive to take away the three-pointer mm-hmm. and perhaps they're just a better team that night? I think it's a ladder. I really do. Uh, I actually think that, that, that for Purdue, if they get on that run, right, and they get to a Final Four, uh, I there's a world where I, I'm sitting here saying I think they're my front runner to win the national championship. You know why? For them getting to the Final Four could be harder than the Final Four itself. And you might be saying, how? Are you crazy? They're going to face even better teams in the Final Four. But you know what? Purdue, here's the thing, guys. Purdue's faced all these heavyweights this year. It's nothing new for them to play against an elite team. They went to the Maui. They won the Maui. They beat Tennessee. They beat Gonzaga, who's, who's on the bubble now. But they, they beat Marquette. They right? beat Arizona. They yeah. beat Arizona. Yeah. They beat Arizona. They beat Alabama, who's in first place the SEC. I'm not worried about Purdue if they get to the Final Four. I, by that point, I'll be impressed that they made it, that they broke through, that they did it. All, the, the pressure on them is getting there. No question. It's uh, John, getting there. I, they've got to have the voices the in their head, four. right? What's that? They've got the thing. The thing that, to me – I mean, to your point, the the thing when you look at Purdue, let's say Purdue, Connecticut, Houston, and we'll throw Tennessee in there, right? The one thing that Purdue has that those teams don't is the whispers in their ear and the echoes yeah. of North Texas and Little Rock, even though that wasn't this group, and then certainly Fairleigh Dickinson. Once you get past, you break through that first barrier, then it's like a weight off their shoulders, seemingly. And I think they're going to have an 8-9 matchup against an athletic team, perhaps, that could give them fits. But they get past that. They make it into weekend two. To me, they've gone. They've they've made it through the hard part. I could not agree more with you. Yeah, I think that's it. It's, it's a psychological thing early in the tournament. You're right. If I'm an 8 or 9, let's face it, the 8 or 9 who sees Purdue as the one in their bracket is going to start clapping. Purdue's got to use that to their advantage. They got to come out and show you, you don't want to play us. I liken it to 2015, 16 Villanova guys. So going into that tournament, we were like, well, this Villanova team, they've got it. Like they, they could make the final four. They beat UNC Asheville in their first game. They blew out Iowa in their second game. Then they play Miami and we're kind of walking in saying, well, Miami's really athletic. They're quick. They can, nope. uh, Villanova blew them out. They beat them by 23. Then you get to the Elite Eight game, and they play Kansas. And and what was the narrative going into the game? The narrative going into the game was they can't do it. Villanova can never break through in this spot. This is not Jay Wright's thing. That was the mental hurdle that they had to battle. They beat Kansas. It was almost as if once they got to the Final Four, I remember being in the press room, and the whole thing was, well, you know, they finally did it. They got here. And it was like everything was off their back. That's what I feel like with Purdue. What, if they get to the Final Four for this program, I'm not saying you're not trying to win a national championship. That's not my argument at all. But when you haven't been to a Final Four since 1980, 
that will shed off the weight of that history so that if you're then in the final four, at that point, you're just, you're, you're on the ride of a lifetime and you're playing. It's early in the tournament when every narrative is going to be, they can't do it. They can't do it. They can't do it. Like it was with Virginia in 2019, that they're going to have to fight it. Cause once you get to the final four, all the narratives of you can't or all the stuff that's negative when you get the four teams, you're not talking about their flaws. You're talking about all their strengths. And this team, if they get there, will be ready for that. I totally feel that. He's John Fanta, covers college basketball for Fox. And you can also hear him commentary on the Field of 68 podcast all throughout March. And next year, going to join us in Kalamazoo. Exactly. He'll be there with us Week in Kalamazoo. Yeah. John, I appreciate you making time for us as always. And as Jake mentioned, there's a lot of people, myself included, that can relate to losing a parent. Our condolences to you. And as you mentioned, like your dad would tell you, enjoy this. Enjoy every moment and continue to make your family proud as we are at the best time of year. The countdown to March Madness. Thank you, guys. God bless you. I really appreciate the well wishes and hope to talk with you guys soon enough. Sounds good. John Fanta, always appreciate uh, appreciate it from Fox Sports. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Two o'clock hour underway in Indianapolis. It is actually underway everywhere in the Eastern Time Zone. My name is Jake Query. Jimmy Cook, the other voice you hear on this program. Eddie Garrison flying controls for us and just dialed up Lance Zerline who is an NFL Network analyst. Of course, the NFL Network is going to provide more than 50 hours of live combine coverage coming up and starting on Tuesday from here in Indianapolis. That time of year again in the NFL Network is where you will be able to visually see what we will be talking about on this radio station, and that is all of the coverage in terms of the combine. And Lance, I will give you the biggest softball of all time because of my appreciation of you joining us, and that is this. The biggest storyline of the Combine is going to be what? Um, I mean, it's just going to be quarterbacks. It's, it's never – I don't think there's a single – you know, it's going to be, frankly, one, two, three. It's going to be Caleb Williams, Drake May, and Jaden Daniels and how those guys shake out. I don't think – I mean, look – if Drake May just kills it or if Jaden Daniels kills it and Caleb doesn't look very good, which is hard when you're on air, but it's happened before, um, it could generate a lot more conversation because media members love to do nothing more than create a narrative that the number one pick is unsettled. So I do think that's going to be one of the, the narratives at the Combine that, that develops is is will the Bears trade the number one pick? Is it all oh, is there now – competition for the number one pick. I think that's that's really what it's going to be. I think that's that's it. And it's also going to be, when, when we walk out of there, it's going to be Malik Neighbors. Because Malik Neighbors is about to test great, and there's going to be more conversation about him potentially going ahead of Marvin Harrison Jr. Really? Because, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. here, Lance, as you know, here in Indianapolis, everybody had the brilliant idea of, like, the Colts need to just trade up and get Marvin Harrison Jr. right now because Marvin Harrison played for the Colts. Right. But, um, 
Harrison Jr., though, still we're talking, what, probably at worst top six, ten? No, I'd say at worst top five. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I'd be shocked if he got past four, honestly. Um, I think there are going to be some teams that have neighbors ahead of uh, ahead of uh, Marvin Harrison Jr., but it wouldn't be by much. I mean, it's just you just maybe prefer the speed and, you know, the elite speed and playmaking potential of neighbors over the polish and well-rounded game of Marvin Harrison Jr. It would just be one of those things where you're just kind of, you know, you like this one better or this one better, and it's it's in the same class. So um, I, I don't think Marvin Harrison Jr. falls below four. I mean, I think he could be a Patriot. If not a Patriot, you know, I think he could be uh, uh, an Arizona Cardinal, either three or four. But worst-case scenario, I couldn't see him, you know, falling below five. For example, the team. Let me ask you this, Lance. Lance Zerline is our guest, and I'm going to fall right into what you were just talking about, right? Of like, it's you know, we start falling in love with potential narratives or that may never happen. But when you're looking at, for example, if you're Chicago and you're thinking, let's say Chicago does say, you know what, we're going to give this time with Justin Fields, and we'll we'll trade out of this for somebody that wants a quarterback. The franchises that would be most likely that have the combination of assets and desire for a young quarterback to move into the front three where they, they are not currently right now would be which franchises? The front three? Well, yeah. I mean, in other words, if the, so of those three quarterbacks yeah, that you no, mentioned – I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I didn't know if I should include – you know, I didn't know if you meant trying to get up for Kayla Williams. Because, Williams, see, I don't think the Bears are going to – you're going to have to really crush the Bears with an offer for them to move out of one, in my opinion. So I just don't see any way you you get ready to pay Justin Fields a second contract with the money that's going to be worth when he hasn't proven himself as a passer, and the ability to go back to a rookie contract is just is just going to be too strong. So I don't think there's any way the Bears get out of number one because I don't think anyone's going to pay what it takes to get to number one. But to get inside the top three for a quarterback, if we're not talking just Caleb Williams, um, I think I think the Giants have some desperation. I mean, I think it's going to be less about. Your, it's going to be less about draft capital this year because you can always fire up. You know, the, the Browns fired in three first-round picks, future first to the Houston Texans. So, and this will be the last year of those picks for the Texans. So you can use future first if you really want to. The whole key is you don't want to be too far away from the, you know, the drop. You don't want the drop to be too far because then the sliding scale of, of how much you have to give up goes way up. So I think when you look at the teams who might be interested – you know, the Minnesota Vikings obviously would come to mind. They're a top 10 team. Uh, the the Giants at number six would obviously come to mind. And then, you know, I saw Mike Tannenbaum throw something out there that I thought was intriguing about Deshaun Watson to the to – the, he said, hey, what about a, a trade with Deshaun Watson going to the, you know, going to the, the Giants and then the Giants send Daniel Jones and draft picks and all this and that. But, you know, you could also look the same way – at the Cleveland Browns, if they wanted to get out from under that contract and you wanted to see about, you know, jumping up there to Washington, for example, and saying, hey, why don't you guys take a look at, at Deshaun Watson potentially? And so that's that's an example of something that could happen out of the blue with a, a quarterback that's established. But I really don't think that Washington is going to want to – at two, and then I think New England will be open for business, but I don't think Washington at two is really going to want to move back beyond – you know, maybe the top six or seven picks, to be honest with you. NFL Network's Lance Zerline is our guest. Lance, 
from different conversations with scouts, those that cover the league, we know that the combine itself, when it begins next week, is a small piece in the larger profile of any prospect. Whether it's their game tape, whether it's their pro days, it's a good mix and blend of evaluating talent. From your perspective, though, in today's NFL, who has the most to gain from participating in the combine? Is it the prospects themselves? Is it the scouts, the franchises? Who has the most to gain next week? Um, well, I mean, I think I think it's I still think it's a, a healthy blend of both. You know, a lot a lot of people will look. You don't have to. There there are plenty of players who wouldn't have to work out in the combine and they'd still get drafted high. I shouldn't say plenty. There are some. But you better have really good football character because right off the bat, there's going to be a concern. There's going to be a concern. Is this guy a diva? What are we doing here? Is he just being run by his agent? Is he going to be a problem when we get him in the uh, in the locker room? There's a lot more that goes into it than just you know what your what your measurables are and what the numbers you post are. You want to ultimately you want to have a room filled with guys who are single minded in their purpose of winning a championship, and it's easy to 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 derail that with players who are selfish or when it becomes a a me versus we attitude. And so I think that, you know, for the scouts and and the evaluators, I should say, obviously seeing these guys work out on the field, seeing their movements, seeing, you know, what, what some of the numbers post, because I know that there's that, that old stale line of underwear Olympics, but the reality is, yeah, some things don't matter as much as others, and ironically enough, the 40-yard dash is meaning less and less behind the scenes as teams get their hands on miles per hour on, you know, in terms of actual play speed uh, from games. But I can say that, man, there's so much that's important. There's so much with explosion numbers on broad jump and, and vertical lead to tell you something about, you know, the, the power in the hips. There's so much in terms of change of direction on field drills and, and with some of the, you know, with, with some of the um, – uh, testing the pro, the the pro athletic, the the shuttle run that they do. There's there's things that really really do matter. Not to mention getting behind the scenes and talking to these guys, getting the medical. So I mean, the combine of is of tremendous importance, and it's not just to the the teams, but to the players. And I think if if the players ever, you know, every once in a while you'll hear this stuff. The players should just, you know, should boycott and they should get paid to do this. This is your job interview for a huge paycheck and an opportunity to take care of your family for the rest of your life. Don't screw it up with with trying to squeeze the golden goose. This is just part of the process and should be, I think, viewed as such. You mentioned concerns if you're skipping the combine or not at the combine, and the intangibles of a player's character often matter a great deal in the grand scheme of things with talent evaluation. How often in your experience in, in, in covering this – is it a misevaluation because that that is I don't want to say a stereotype, but that's often if it's a wide receiver or something like that skipping the combine. Oh, is this guy have an ego problem? How often does that happen initially? But then the deeper you dive into the player, maybe it's just a one-off thing and, and not a cause for concern. Well, most guys don't skip the combine, so I mean we're kind of we're kind of just talking about something that doesn't. If you're talking about don't work out at the combine or skip, guys don't skip. The don't work out. Yeah, about, I apologize. Oh, yeah, not working out. Yeah. Okay. So no 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 that okay well well not working out is not the end of the world that that's I want to make sure that we're clear on that guys who choose not to work out all they've done frankly is just they have just created more pressure at their pro day and uh, sometimes there's not going to be general managers and many times there won't be general managers at certain pro days so you miss your chance to shine in front of 
in front of a larger number of personnel from a particular team. So that's that's concern number one. And if you don't do as well, you still have the pro day as your retest to fall back on. Um, no, not not working out. It's not going to hurt you from a football character standpoint. Not at all. I, it's it's a personal choice. They're not going to kill you on that. What I will say though is that um, when it comes to evaluations on character and things like that, personal character, you have to remember that these these scouts, these area scouts for the Colts, right? They'll go out to to multiple locate. They they have their own areas, and they're talking to coaches. They're talking to strength coaches. They're talking to uh, people you wouldn't even believe. Uh, to get as much intel on a player because in part they're they're you know they're private investigators where they have to uncover everything so that they can have the discussions in meetings so they know who these players are and they can work their way around certain topics you know they they gather it over two and three years and then they address these issues with the players at meetings at the combine for example or personal you know when they come in for their individual workouts so it's important that Chris Ballard and his staff for example know what the ticking time bombs are, know what the issues are, and some, but but also likewise, know who the great characters are, know who the guys who really care about winning. And I know that Ballard more than anyone, it is, yeah, he loves traits, but man, he is really, really big in the football character. And he wants a certain type of guy in the building. And, you know, to do that, you got to know who they are. And that, that doesn't happen at the combine. That happens, you know, over a two and three year process with those area scouts who are digging in and going to the schools and getting as much intel and watching guys practice and reading the body language. It's a, it's a, it's an art form, frankly. Lance Zerline is our guest. His mock draft is available at NFL.com. He will be part of the 50 hours of essentially nonstop ubiquitous coverage from the combine for the NFL network. Lance Indianapolis in round one is selecting 15th. It is my opinion that, the Colts, and I think most Colts fans would say this, when you watched deep into the playoffs, the one thing the Colts, I think, could use is open space playmakers. I'm not saying those guys are a dime a dozen, but certainly even, the, you know, they got a they got a crowded tight end room, but they don't have necessarily like open space yard after catch type tight ends. Do they have at 15, are they going to have the choice of some guys that can help them in that area? Well, I mean, you're basically asking me a Brock Bowers question. And, yes, I think 15 Brock Bowers will be available for the Colts to consider. I don't care as much. People make a big deal about uh, when I you know, I put Jatavion Sanders, a, a tight end from Texas, to San Francisco at 32 at, in, in my first mock. And, you know, 49ers fan, we got a bunch of tight ends. Do you have the right one? Do you have dudes? Right. I mean, you don't, It's you never worry about – drafting a talented player into a position where you have a lot of players. Do you have players who do what he does? No, you do not. And I like Granson fine, but I mean, the fact is, and I like, you know, Mallory did a nice job last year is better than I expected. But the fact is he is rare run after catch stuff. He's basically like, a, he's like watching Mike Allstott with the ball in his hands um, after the catch. And so Brock Bowers is just a unique player. He's not, he doesn't really fit the height, weight length, mold that Ballard likes, but when you see him test, he's going to run fast. He's going to jump high for a tight end. So he is going to match it there, but he is a guy who helps you mismatch defenses. And you make a good point in today's NFL, you need to have weapons that do it. You need to have a variety of, of weaponry to, to go attack defenses. And, you know, you have a, a ball winner with Pittman and we'll see what happens with Pittman. You have a vertical with Pierce. You need to have a guy 
who can who can really kill it in the middle of the field. And Daniel Jeremiah, when I did move the sticks with them, he kind of he kind of thought Brock Bowers is a combination of George Kittle and, and Dallas Clark from the Colts, the, the old Colts days. And I think that's a pretty good comparison. And so, yeah, I think Bowers will be there because it's hard to slot uh, tight ends in the top 15, 16 picks. It's just really difficult these days. However, he is a guy who could be a special weapon for, for Richardson. And, and you look, historically, young quarterbacks have loved having good – Got to have that you know, safety good, net, right? Good tight ends. Yeah, you want to have that safety blanket, and that's what Brock Bowers can be. This draft, Lance Zerline, if you were a general manager that is in desperate need of a certain position – that would be causing you to lose sleep because it just quite frankly is a year where that position is not very deep. That would be what? Well, I think it's linebacker. It's not a great linebacker draft. So if you want an inside linebacker, I mean, you're not going to find one in the first round. And then when it does pop up, you need to, you need to get, there's going to be maybe three or four you want to get your hands on. After that, I think it becomes real, real average, real fast. And I also think defensive tackle is going to be a tough one too, because there's some talented guys, but there are some questions with some of those guys. So once I think the the top four to five go off the board, you know, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a little trickier running back. Also running back. There's some, I think there's some average running backs in this draft. There's, there's a few guys, Jonathan Brooks from Texas. He's coming off an ACL tear, but he's my, my favorite running back. And I think he goes in the second and then Jalen Wright from Tennessee is my second favorite, but that's another one that, you know, luckily it's not viewed as, as an elite position that must be addressed early, and you can find runners all over the place. But uh, finding running backs is going to be one where it's probably best just to wait it out until late day two, early day three, and start looking at that point. Is there a position, Lance, in your opinion, that let's say – I mean, running back is is the the first thought, right? That that the the position has just been devalued, but then all of a sudden you realize this year, you know, if you got a good running back, it can be a huge difference for you. But is there a position that seemingly has higher value than say it did ten years ago? Well, I think tight end. Um, tight end is one because now tight ends are looked at as, and it was really happening then. It just wasn't. I don't think teams necessarily valued it as much. If you really go back, Bill, Bill Belichick was trying to do the two tight end thing for a long time. He had figured out that from a matchup standpoint, it really made it hard to match up on players. And so, you know, he, he had a couple different players. I'm trying to remember in the, like around 2003, 2004 tight ends that he uh, targeted that, that didn't get it done. Then he found Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. We know what happened with Hernandez, but you know, from a football standpoint, he really did get it right with those two, and it was causing major issues. And then we know that Gronk was just a, a monster. But when you have a really good pass catching tight end, you look at Tony Gonzalez, you look at uh, Antonio Gates. You don't have to have great, great wide receivers. You look at Travis Kelsey. It doesn't turn. It, it really alters. You know, teams now look at that as, hey, wait a minute. We've got a great pass catcher. You can call him tight end if you want, but you've got a target, and you have a primary target. And so I think having a pass-catching tight end who can also block is great, but when you have a guy that you know is a playmaker at tight end, I think it really changes things because, as anyone in a fantasy football draft will tell you, once those top tight ends are gone, it's like it falls off the map. Well, because that's what's happening in the NFL, too. If you have one, it's an enormous weapon that you have and you don't find great tight ends typically in the fourth round fifth round you do find wide receivers that come out of nowhere in the second third fourth fifth rounds that turn into really good starters and 
you know, guys like Devontae Adams, he'll be a Hall of Famer one day. So um, I think that's the big difference is tight ends. If you have a, a, a really good class like you had last year, that can be something special. And that's why Bowers, to me, and Sanders, both of those guys from, from Texas, they have a chance to be really kind of special in the passing game. And after that, I mean, it just falls completely off. So I think tight end is one because of the matchup potential it gives you is one that you have to take a look at as being a little different now than maybe 10 years ago. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. NFL Network is our guest. His most recent 1.0 mock draft for the 2024 campaign is up on NFL.com. And I know you alluded to this earlier, Lance, but when Jake asked the question regarding what they could do at 15 and Brock Bowers is the player that you highlighted in your 1.0. And I I understand mocks are just exercises. We can't possibly simulate what's going to happen within three spots, let alone 15. But for the sake of the exercise, if Brock Bowers is taken before the Colts come around, you highlight like we've done on this show, receiver, cornerback, pass rush, O-line. There's a lot of areas where the Colts could choose to go. And when looking at Anthony Richardson having a de facto rookie season this year, if Bowers is off the board, where's the most likely area if you were managing the Colts you would go? I think probably um, it would either be rush, uh, defensive end. Well, be okay, so it'd be I'll give you targets specifically. Byron Murphy, Texas defensive tackle. If you let Grover walk, uh, Byron is going to be Bowers going to love him. I mean, this guy's pure lean mass three-down player, Um, he has a chance to be really, really good. So I would say a defensive tackle like Byron Murphy, I would say a pass rusher like maybe maybe Dallas Turner from uh, uh, Dallas Turner or maybe even Chop Robinson. That would be a little early for Chop, but I I also have a really high grade on Chop. And then I would say offensive tackle is the next one. Guys like, you know, long-arm guys like uh, uh, Guyton out of Oklahoma and – Amarius Mims, uh, people aren't putting them as high in their dra- mock drafts right now. But there's going to be a run on tackles. So don't be shocked if those tackles start flying off the board inside the top 20. So those are guys that I think I would um, probably not wide receiver. Once you get outside of the top three wide receivers, I'm not really a fan of taking anyone there. You know, <clears throat> I'd love to see cornerback as an option there. I just don't know if the Colts will draft cornerback in the first. Lastly, Lance, and again, 50 hours worth of coverage on the NFL Network. Lance will be a part of that mock draft. Well, you guys NFL. are doing great com. at promoting this. I'll make sure and let Andrew Howard know. These guys are really good at promoting this. <laughs> hey, man. I'm telling you that. Hey, listen, Lance. I mean, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, right? Hey, I mean, we know how it goes, right? Hey, lastly, uh, there's interest of this just because of the local ties, obviously, with him playing at Indiana. Uh, and it was a great story over the course of the year. But Michael Penix, he slots mm-hmm. where? Like, what round are we looking at? I think we're maybe looking at uh, the earliest second and the, the latest uh, fourth. The only way he falls fourth is medicals. The medicals, you know, he's had an ACL tear in the same knee twice. He's had a shoulder issue. He's had shoulder injuries in both shoulders, although, you know, I talked to I talked to his agent. We were talking a little bit about that. And I, I don't know if one of the shoulder things is going to be as big a deal. But, um, I, you know, when you watch Penix, he's, he's really good. He was great. If you only watch him against Texas, you think he's the best quarterback that's come out of football in 10 years. Um, 
But then Michigan showed one of the areas that is kind of a weakness for him, and it's he's not a guy who throws well on the move. When you move his feet, he is his his completion percentage plummets. And I think he has to be in rhythm. He's he's operated in a very quarterback friendly uh, system, but he also did well to, to bolster the system. So he, he can throw the intermediate throws. He's got a, a whip, a whip quick uh, release. He's got plenty of, of power in that arm, but he needs to get more consistent. Uh, I think throwing with touch underneath and also uh, with, with being able to operate outside of the pocket in today's NFL, they'll chase, they'll do whatever they have to, to chip. They think that's your weakness. They'll chase you out. And you're going to have to prove you can throw on the move and not just throw it away or not panic and throw it near somebody's feet. So I think with Penix, the good is really good, but the areas of concern will cause them to, to fall into the second, and the injury stuff is what could cause them to fall below there. So I think he ends up being the uh, – I think he probably ends up being the, what, fifth quarterback off the board. So he's the Hendon Hooker of this year's draft, right? Yeah, I would say so, although I would – yeah, I like Hendon Hooker coming out, but Penix to me has – is a little more scheme independent with hooker. You didn't know how he would do outside of tennis as Josh Heupel's offense with Penix. I see him make throws. Like I know Penix can make throws. So I have more faith uh, in Penix, even though Hendon hooker was that, you know, was that guy coming off the ACL tear and was a legit dual threat quarterback. Penix is not a runner. So that's one thing that kind of works against him right now. Lance, all we ask is that when you come to Indianapolis for the combine for part of the coverage that you spend a lot of money here. That's it, right? <laughs> Is that all? That's all we I'll ask. Make yeah. sure my per diem goes to use. Don't That's, worry. <laughs> go to, go to the restaurants, have a couple beers, enjoy it, and soak in the I city. Usually do. All right. I usually do. Lance, we appreciate it, man. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right, Lance Zerline again, NFL.com, where he has his mock draft, and he does have the Colts 15th right now, going with Bowers out of Georgia.